have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. If you want to do the best possible job, go in and either caulk or use an expandable or low expansion foam around all of those cracks and then come back and put the bat insulation over that. The bat's going to fill the big cavity, but it's not going to seal it extremely tight. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here weekends at this time to answer questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you'd like to join us, there's a couple different ways that you can participate in the program. You can call this number anytime at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. As we work around our home, frequently we don't think about some of the hazards that may exist there. And for those of you living in older homes, and I'm going to give you some time frames, meaning let's say pre-1975, 1978, in that time period, there may be some hazards you're just not aware of. Often we're aware of electrical issues, maybe even plumbing issues as far as leaks, but things that can hurt us are electrical and other items that we can see, structural elements, failures that we may have. But there are things lurking in many of these homes that can be a real health problem to us. If we're messing with things, we shouldn't be. That is asbestos. That's the one item we want to take a few minutes and talk about today. I've had a number of questions in the last several months about this, been involved in some asbestos abatement and projects, and so it's fresh on my mind, and it's something that I think everybody needs to be aware of. It's not uncommon for us to tune into the radio, the TV, pick up a newspaper or magazine, and read or see something about mesotheliomia, uh, which is, has been uh, in the news for many, many years. And this is an issue that develops from people that have been exposed to asbestos fibers for many, many years. And the first thing I want you to be aware of is this is not an attempt to scare any of you about this because asbestos in our homes typically is not an issue if you deal with it correctly. It's been there for a long period of time. And just because it may exist, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a health issue. So we want to talk a little bit about it today. First, for those of you that don't know, let's talk about what is asbestos. And asbestos is very simple. It is a mineral fiber, and it is a fiber that is so small that it takes a microscope for you to identify it. So you can't typically look around the house in the basement, in the attic, look at your shingles on the roof and say, oh, that's got asbestos fibers in it. Isn't going to happen that way, folks. So it's something that really is not visible to your eye. But then, and there are several types of asbestos fibers as well. Most of these products, or the fibers, were added to a variety of products throughout decades to strengthen those. And we saw this to be most common in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And in that time frame, they were starting to see some recognition of issues with that. And by the time we moved into the 70s, asbestos was banned from most construction products in the United States. Doesn't mean it doesn't still exist in other parts of the world, but it, it, it was banned from most products in the United States. Where it's most common and where you're more likely to find it is going to be in items that deal with heat or wearing surfaces. Now, I'm going to be a little more specific about that in just a moment. Can it affect your health? Yes, it can, but you have to have long-term exposure to these microscopic fibers 
day in and day out, something that would be more common in a work environment. That's one reason we have seen the legal changes around this country over the last several decades. And the risk is that it can develop lung cancer, and as I said, uh, mesothelioma, which is a cancer of the lining of the chest and the abdominal cavity. So these are two big problems that can be created with long-term, heavy, constant exposure. Most people exposed to small amounts of this, and we are, like so many other things that are dangerous to us in our daily life. It is not a big deal, and it's not going to create a problem for you. When we look at locations that we're likely to see it in our house, and this is really what this segment's about, is just to caution you. Products that contain them are likely to be found in and around steam pipes. Some of you are listening to us in areas where you've got old boilers in your system, and you'll have insulation on your hot water lines, boiler systems, boiler liners, which you don't typically get into. But these are areas that you're going to find asbestos-containing products from many, many years ago, from decades ago. Sometimes it's simply the paper that wraps the outside of that that may contain asbestos as well. Areas that we don't think about, you may have heard that in the past, but areas that you may not think about deal with a product called resilient floor tile or vinyl asbestos tile. A good indicator of that is if you have old tiles on your floor, your living room, your kitchen, a family room that are roughly nine inches square, it's a pretty good bet that that tile contains asbestos. Once the industry moved away from it, most tile products moved to 12 by 12 square, 12 inches by 12 inches. So if you've got a 9 by 9, chances are probably 9 out of 10 that it may contain some amount of asbestos to reinforce that particular tile. The other area you don't see it is going to be on the adhesive that glued that tile to the floor. And that occurred for many years, even after the 9 by 9 tile was no longer produced. There were still a few years that mastics were produced that had asbestos fibers. Glazing compound, if you've got old steel frame windows, glazing compound that was used in that day tended to contain asbestos. So many homes around this country have a cement fiber board on the exterior, and today that's a term we use. But cement sheeting or millboard or paper that was used for insulation around furnaces or even on some of the exterior siding contained asbestos. And we can go on further and without going into so much detail because I'm going to direct you to a location later. We've got door gaskets, soundproofing materials. Even drywall compound up through period in the 70s had some degree of asbestos fibers in it. Artificial ashes and embers that are used in a lot of fireplaces. Automobile brake pads and linings. This just gives you examples. It's not just our home, but it's other areas that we may be exposed to as we work in and around our house as well. So houses built between the 1930s and the 1950s also have a greater tendency to contain asbestos and insulation that may have been placed either in the walls, floors, or in the ceilings. But most common, it's going to be, as I said, in our piping and ductwork insulation. So if you're in the process of doing maintenance work, if you're looking at remodeling, if there are some repairs that you're going to undertake yourself, and typically you can do this, you may want to think twice about this. Now, these things are not typically dangerous to us unless you do just what I'm talking about, and that is you decide you're going to open it up, you're going to expose these fibers to the air, and you're going to make them airborne. If you have a project like that, folks, you need to contact a remediation contractor, bring them in, and have them take a look at this and take care of it according to health department standards. If it's nothing more than removing asbestos, then you can go on with the repairs. But be safe at what you're doing. And for so much information, more than you may want to know, I want to send you back to my website, kindacontractor.com, and click on the asbestos link. 
and you'll find all kinds of information from the federal government and some policies on your states on how to properly abate this. Whatever you do, stay safe in your home remodeling and repair work. Coming up this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor, coming up in about a half hour from now uh, during our In the News segment, Ken will tell you why home insurance rates are on the rise. And also, Ken will go one-on-one with Rick Williams of the Rockingham Group, a local insurance company, to talk about special insurance needs and questions you should be asking your insurance agent. That's all coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And again, if you want to participate in the program, you can do it a couple different ways. You can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com, or you can dial this number and reach Ken anytime at 800-614-2975. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt, and you're listening to Ken the Contractor. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question for Ken? You can reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And let's go to the phone lines right now. And joining us is Roger. He listens to Ken the Contractor on the Big Talker, KMAJ, 1440 AM in Topeka, Kansas. Roger, hi. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Yeah. How are you this morning? Good, Roger. Thanks for the call. How can I help you? Yes, I'm looking at this product that's called a radiant barrier. Okay. The fabric that you lay over your ins- existing insulation and it has reflective value. Do you have any opinion on this product? Well, there are, are more than one item in the marketplace that uses, I'll say, a similar term, radiant barrier. Now, the one you just talked about is being applied over the insulation that's in the ceiling as opposed right. to the type that actually adheres to or staples to the top cord of the trusses in your attic space. Have you looked at both of those? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. So, I think I've got two situations. I've got a smaller attic area over a living room that I can walk right into, and it's the studs are exposed, and the the vertical. I mean the the stud. It, it's not at a bad angle. It's a nice angle that'd be very easy to do this yourself. Okay. So, and that's one of the areas I'm thinking about. Okay. The bottom line is the product is effective, the product works. I have read data from different parts of the country where some research has been done, people actually reporting their energy savings over a one- to two-year period after these have been installed in both two different applications, and I'll talk about that briefly in a moment. But we're seeing in these reports energy savings from 22 to about 60%. Now, 60% to me is staggering. What that may say, though, is somebody had an extremely inefficient home from an energy standpoint, and perhaps they've done more than just install this radiant barrier. Mm -hmm. But what the radiant barrier will do for others that may not be familiar with it, I know you've done your homework, it sounds like. Obviously, if it's installed across just the top of the insulation in the bottom cord of the trusses, it's still going to tend to reflect some of the radiant, uh, the heat and so forth back, but it's driving it back into that attic space. So it's going to help prevent heat from building up or getting into your home. So it clearly will help your air conditioning and your, your even your heating system in the winter months. Mm-hmm. But for those systems that are applied to the bottom cord, the bottom side of the top cord of the trusses, meaning up on that slope you're talking about, Correct. and not over the insulation that may be laying down below for some people, anyway, it tends to be a little more effective 
Now, you've got to be sure that you've got proper ventilation so that that heat can go back through the soffit vents or through the ridge vent. Right. But what right. it's doing is keeping your attic much, much cooler, and you sound like you've got a walk-up space that you're you're using yes. for storage. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm storing junk that uh, we don't need. You yeah, know. but that's what we all do in our attics. We put <laughs> junk in them. At least we don't have to leave it in our living room or our family room. Yeah, and my wife said, well, the first thing you're going to do is clean that junk out of there before you do anything. <laughs> well, now, that may not be all bad. That's a debate you and your wife are going to have to much with. But at least while you're up there fiddling with this stuff later on, if you put this attic insulation in and it's on the bottom side of the trusses, again, the top cord, uh, you're going to find you're so much more comfortable in that space, and you're going to find that it saves you money on your cooling, especially during the summer months. So the bottom line for me is that it's a worthwhile investment. I've seen a number of properties with it installed. Again, I've done some degree of research and follow-up as we look at cases around the country, not just one location, and it has proven to be quite effective. What I do want to caution you to do, even buying the material, is be sure you shop around and you compare the statistical data on it because it's not all created equal. Okay. And you will find sometimes most of us, including me, we're driven by price point, and we say, hey, this costs less money than the other one does, and I'll look at that without paying attention to the statistical data. Maybe it doesn't have the thickness, the mill thickness, or the thermal resistance that something else does. So be careful about comparing the performance specs, and you'll do yourself a real service. And if you're going to have it installed by a contractor, you want to be sure you're taking at least three bids on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was... Quite a variance in price from one con. I've only had one contractor look at it, but uh, and that's what you're going to find if you get three. You typically will find two a little closer together than all three. If you find all three close together, that's great. But if you've got one that's a real renegade, either a price that's excessively high or extremely low, and and a price that's way too low can be as bad as one that's way too high. Just means it may not be complete. They may not be offering everything that somebody else is. They may not even be offering the same product performance standards. So that's why I always encourage people to get at least three bids and to read the fine print. I know Jim kids me occasionally about me reading all the fine print, but the devil's in the details. Yeah. So you want to do that, and and, and you'll save yourself some dollars and cents. You don't have some guesstimate of what a cost per square foot of this product would be ranging? I really don't because it varies so much from one part of the country to the next, and that's why no matter where you are, even as a builder, if I'm in other areas, I'm going to be taking three bids. So Get those three bids and see if that doesn't work out for you. Give me a call back and let me know. Okay. Thank Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Roger. Take care. Don't forget, if you'd like to reach Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975 or email him a question. And we've got an email question here, Ken, that's probably one of the most asked you get. And it's about replacing a certain uh, element in the house. Uh, Horace's is about replacing my heating system. And that's one of those questions, hot water heaters, heating systems. Have I gone as far as I can with this particular one? Do I need to invest in a whole new system? And it really says, how do you know when it's time to replace a heating system instead of repairing it? He goes on with one other statement, though, and a lot of us face this. He says, the inspector we got to look at the heating and cooling system says, we recommend a new one. He said, well, of course, he's going to be happy to sell me a new one. Well, Horace, let me give you some data that will help you first for All of us, all of the products in our home have a life cycle. It's like our cars, our roof. It doesn't matter. It's only designed to last so long. Once you've gone so many years, you can expect you're going to have to either start putting money in maintenance or you need to replace it. 
An air conditioning and heating system, especially a central system, a heat pump system, for example, that you're using 12 months out of the year, both in heating and cooling cycle, uh, is going to last typically, when they were built, they're going to last 12 to 15 years. Now, today's newer ones might last 16, 17 years. But from 15 years ago, if you've got a unit horse that's about 15 years old, you are at the anticipated end of that life cycle from the time it was designed. But even if, for those of you that have systems that are still functioning, you may want to look at energy efficiency. If you happen to have a 16- or 17-year-old unit, it's gone past the anticipated life cycle, but it is so energy inefficient by today's standards that you're going to find a reasonable payback to go ahead and buy a new system, shop around, do it when you can get the best bargains, because if it's working, you don't need it immediately, but you want to go ahead and plan on looking at a new system and replace it with a SEER that may be in a 14, 15, 16 rating. That's an energy efficiency rating. That's S-E-E-R, SEER, because 15-year-old units are typically going to be in a 9, 10, maybe an 11 range. So if you're jumping up to a 15 or 16, you're saving money every month on that system. And, horse, that's the main thing that I would look at is an old system, I'd go ahead and plan on replacing it. Also, if you've got a system, even if it's 10, 12 years old and you're pouring money into it every two or three months, it's time to do something different. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He has over 30 years of experience in both the construction industry and also building both commercial and residential homes. If you've got a question for Ken, you can always reach us at 800-614-2975 or email questions to KenTheContractor.com. You can friend us on Facebook at KenTheContractor and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. I'm Jim Britton. Thanks for joining us this weekend here on Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, Ken is here every weekend at this time answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. Again, our contact number, 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. This is Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is here answering questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you'd like to join us, you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. Time now for one-on-one with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels, all to make your life better, provide options, and most importantly, to save money. My next guest is Rick Williams. Rick is an agent with the Rockingham Group, and Rick's been good enough to join us today so that we can talk a little bit about some unique insurance items, some areas that we don't often think about that frequently are areas we need coverage. Rick, welcome to the show. Hi, Ken. Glad you could join us today. In the past, we have talked about standard insurance policies and, and how premiums will vary for homeowners depending on what type of structure they have and where they may live. I want to talk for just a moment about special riders that may be required for wind damage and other unique coverage that many times either we as a homeowner don't think about asking or we assume is covered under our base policy. In some cases, our agent doesn't tell us. Talk to us a little bit about some of these special riders that we should be considering. Wind generally isn't a problem on a homeowner policy unless you uh, live on the coast. More and more companies are, especially down along the Florida coast and uh, even the Carolinas, and somewhat in Virginia as well, are beginning to either exclude wind coverage if you're within a certain distance of the coastline or they're requiring very high deductibles. For those that live in coastal environments, whether it's the Atlantic coast, the Gulf coast, it doesn't matter. If you're within a certain proximity to that waterfront, you probably should be talking to your agent about specific wind coverage, either to be certain that it's included in your policy or ask if you need a separate rider. Is that a safe way to approach this? 
And then also ask about the deduct. They may have a $500 or $1,000 deductible, say, for example, on fire coverage, and they may have a much higher deductible on wind coverage. And it varies from company to company and state to state. Hey, what about other items that are not necessarily unique to coastal areas but could occur with the weather we've seen across this country this year anytime, anywhere? For example, power outages. You have freezer with the lost food or those people that may have specific health needs that require emergency medical care because they don't have power. There are all types of situations. Are there special riders that should be considered, or do most homeowner policies cover those items? You know, always have an, a conversation with your agent because there are different policy forms out there that can vary somewhat. But generally speaking, power outages, surges are covered. Most standardized forms include $500 food spoilage for a power outage, and you can purchase more. It's not a huge risk. You know, a lot of times that will cover medicines as well and any kind of spoilage in a refrigeration unit or freezer. We certainly had a lot of that from the last storm. That's well, we have. Up and down the East Coast, this storm was quite substantial, and I've yes. talked to folks that lost some expensive medications, obviously yes. many expensive items in their freezer as well, certainly well beyond the $500. So as you yeah. said, that's something to talk to your agent about based on what you have in and around your home that could be damaged or lost due to power outage. For the food, that can again, that can be increased on most policies in $500 increments, so cover that. All right, let's go to another item that we don't think about in the on the East Coast very often at all. Now, on the West Coast, people I know deal with this on a routine basis, and that's earthquake coverage. Now, we were about a, a year ago that we had an East Coast earthquake that did a fair amount of damage in many of our states. People are saying, uh, you know, I'm stuck with this. I had no coverage in my policy. I've had several people approach me with that. Yep. Is this something that we should consider as a standard in our homeowner's policy, or do some companies include this? No, it's generally excluded in homeowner's forms. And if I lived in Louisa County, I'd definitely be buying it. <laughs> Certainly it could happen again if there's a fault line over there. So, yeah, that's generally excluded. You can purchase it. Yeah, there have been several, probably yeah. in the last 20 years in the Virginia area. I yep. know we get down into South Carolina, yep. and we've got other markets that this show is heard in along the East Coast, uh, specifically where people don't think about it. We've got fault lines around right. Charleston, for example. Right. So, right. again, if you're listening on the West Coast, I know you're living with this on a regular basis. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Even though it may not have occurred in the last 100 years, obviously that can change in, in a moment. So that that's def if you're concerned about it, discuss it with your agent. It's not a inexpensive item, but it's not overly expensive to endorse your policy to cover it. Interesting insurance facts for all of us to think about, things we need to be aware of when we're renewing or purchasing new. And maybe for some of us, we should be pulling that policy out of the file drawer and actually reading it to see what coverage we have and what coverage we may need. Good idea. Rick, I certainly appreciate you joining us today. We always appreciate the feedback you have for us. Thanks, Ken. That's this week's edition of One on One with Ken the Contractor, and we thank Rick Williams of the Rockingham Group. Let's go to the phones right now at 800-614-2975, and it's Ronnie who joins us. Ronnie, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Yes, sir. Uh, Ken, I feel very fortunate that I didn't burn my house down. It was built in 1982, and the lights which the contractor uh, which we selected uh, was matching over the dining room table as well as the kitchen light itself. It's a single bulb enclosed uh, fixture. Several times here lately I've been smelling something like a rubberish smell or what. Of course, I didn't think anything about it. It was just very faint, what have you. Then uh, my kitchen light would start flickering sometimes, and I thought, well, the bulb's going bad, so I'd go up Wiggle a little bit, and of course it worked. And I eventually change out the bulb, and it was okay for a little while. And then this past about three weeks ago, it started real bad. 
So uh, the bulb didn't correct the problem, and I pulled down the fixture. And what has happened, it has, heat has took the insulation right off of the wires. And I was very fortunate that it didn't short and burn the house down. Well, after I have the fixture down in my hands, after I took it out, it has stamped in a little bitty print, used no higher than a 60-watt bulb, which you know, as we get older, you want hundreds in it. <laughs> so I was very fortunate. Um, I, I don't see how it, they even allow a fixture that won't take more than a 60-watt bulb. Well, they've been around for decades, unfortunately, and you're right that many of us will violate that particular stamp or label that's on there saying the bulb works, so why don't I just put it in? And this is a real hazard, and it's there for a reason, that the insulation not only on the wiring but the insulation between the fixture itself and anything behind that is only rated for a certain amount of heat. The good news for homes with older fixtures today that if a CFL or an LED lamp or bulb will work in that, they're not producing the heat for the equivalent light that the old 100-watt incandescent did. So that may be the salvation for a lot of people. Great that you've been able to bring this to the air, and hopefully you'll cause some other people to think a little bit about that odor they're picking up in there. Maybe it is a real problem. Yeah, Ronnie, some very, very important advice that you toss along to the rest of our audience, and we do appreciate your call. We've got to take a quick break. We'll continue with more in this edition of Can the Contractor. You can reach us by dialing 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975 or send your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a roofing question, problems with some windows, some plumbing, siding, whatever it is, Ken Patterson is here to help. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. That's exactly what Donna has done coming to us from Topeka, Kansas. Said, I moved into my first house a few weeks ago. Said, I'm really excited and also on a budget. I tend to leave the doors and windows open to save energy when the heat is not excessive. Now, I've noticed during certain times of the day that the bathroom toilet is wet on the exterior of the top part, I think the tank, sometimes on the outside of the bottom also. Do I have a plumbing problem or a leak? I have to clean the water off the floor occasionally, but it's not like a constant running. This is not really an uncommon issue in certain parts of the country in certain types times of the year, Donna. I don't believe you have a leak. What I'm going to suggest you do is check the following. Uh, I think what you have first is a condensation issue. You haven't told me whether you're on a well or you're on domestic or city or county water supply, and that can make a little bit of a difference. But let's assume that you are on a uh, on a well system, for example. Water tends to be a little colder coming up out of the ground, depending on where your pressure or storage tank is, and it may come out of the ground at 60 degrees. If your pressure tank is in a basement or in some place that's shaded and not outside, it's not going to get extremely warm. What you're doing is bringing very cold water into that toilet tank, and you're right, the top part's called the tank and a two-part unit. The bottom is the bowl, and it sits there. And if we have very warm or humid days, it creates condensation on the outside. This is just not uncommon. We see it in all parts of the country from time to time. So the way you can resolve that, there are several things you can do, and I don't recommend you spend a bunch of money on this. 
but you may find that you just need to keep the windows closed in that area, in that bathroom. You may also need to re, to run the exhaust fan for a longer period of time to help pull, uh, exchange the heat or at least keep it a little more modest in that area. And if this occurs more often, right after a shower, for example, you've got this hot, moist air that's having a tendency to cling to the the fixture, and you've got the cold water inside, and it's creating that condensation. So you can pay attention to the cycles here and see what will eliminate it. You, it doesn't sound like you have anything to be concerned with. It's more a usage issue, and no doubt you'll find that once the heat dissipates, you start closing windows, that this goes away in the fall and the winter months, and it's something you'll learn to deal with and control better as you move through the warmer season. Whatever you do, don't let it create a problem where your rotting surfaces, the subfloor or the wall or something along those lines are creating mold or mildew. Time now for our app of the week. What's our app of the week deal with this week? Well, recently I gave you one that uh, was produced by the American Red Cross that dealt with storms. But one I want you to carry with you today that most of us should have, especially if you're not trained or certified in first aid or CPR. And that is one produced also by the American Red Cross. It is their first aid app. And it's the official Red Cross app. It's not one put together by somebody else. It's available for iPod and Android devices. And it's the uh, official site for them. Some features that you'll find there are simple step-by-step instructions. And it guides all of us through everyday first aid scenarios from cuts, scratches, bruises, breaks, debris in your eye, everything that we're all typically dealing with or have from time to time. It's fully integrated with 911, so if you happen to be on this app and uh, the issue you get into determines you decide you need emergency help, you can call the EMS service through 911 also by touching the particular app. It has videos and animations that make learning first aid both fun and easy, and that's one of the things I like about it. You're not sitting in a training class if you've never been to a training class and you're saying some of these might be new to me, don't know that I can read it and follow it well. Well, they actually bring to you first aid videos. They're showing you how to do certain things. There's safety tips for everyone from severe weather uh, winter weather to hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, all of that's part of the app as well. And if we're in a situation you're saying, this is great, Ken, but if I'm in an environmental uh, a problem with a natural disaster and I have no cell tower, I have no cell service, what do I do? This will preload most of these first aid items. So as long as you've got your phone with you, it's like carrying a book, you can open it up. What do I do for severe bleeding, for example, for a compound break? All of that's at your fingertips. So check it out. It's the first aid app by American Red Cross. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were talking on one of our local programs how the number of people in certain circumstances are harmed for mo- far more by people not treating someone properly than whatever the the initial incident is, uh, that they've received the wrong care. Uh, and that's ended up either making an injury more serious or more life-threatening, whereas the proper technique uh, would have rendered it, you know, basically uh, rather easy to deal with. And it's sad to say, but sometimes no treatment is better than the wrong treatment. And that's one reason in things, uh, you know, people injured in car accidents, many times first responders would tell you that unless the vehicle is on fire, Wait until the EMS people are there who know how to properly move them and stabilize them. They may have a severe head or back injury, for example. Do no harm is one of the things that the professionals will tell you. Exactly right. All right, got time for uh, one more email before we we wrap up uh, this hour. And this one comes to us out of Pennsylvania. It's Tony, right? She said, my wife and I live in a 100-year-old Victorian wood home. The basement walls are made of field stone and the floor is made of slate. We've lived in the home for about 40 years and have experienced a damp basement smell ever since moving in. Recently, they put in one of those access door hatches where an old coal, uh, coal room used to be. The contractor who put it in thought it might help get rid of some of the odors and problems. 
problems that they're having down there. However, he goes on now. He says, not only do I have the doors in place, which has helped me get in and out, but now those leak, and I still have a humidity problem. We have so much humidity, I can't run a humidifier all the time. I'd be down there emptying this. I need some help. That's the bottom line. He's got a very long email here. First off, any hatch that's put in hatchway, access way to the outside of a basement needs to be properly sealed. In your case, Tony, you're telling me that you've got a stone foundation. That makes it unusually difficult. It's a little easier if you're up against concrete block, concrete walls, or just brickwork. But where you have stonework, there are gaskets and seals made for all of these. They're a compression seal, and they fit and mold and conform to whatever that exterior surface happens to be. Stone's going to be rather rough. Now, if you have some excessive projections on that stone, your contractor may need to grind down or chip away at those in order to make this a reasonably secure gap and eliminate both light and air and water and snow, which is the problem you go on to elaborate with here in your email. So, yes, that can be installed correctly. It sounds like you had an improper installation. So you need to call the contractor or a contractor, another one back out, and ask that it be done properly using these. Don't allow them just to throw a tube of caulking on each side and say that solves the problem because caulking is not the solution. It is a cosmetic item. It's not designed for long-term waterproofing. I don't care what it says on the side. That's my experience with it. So seal it up properly. That's one issue. You also go on to tell me you're installing a couple of sump pumps in the basement. If you have constant water problems, as you say you do, that's going to be a good start. You need to look at the outside of the house. Be sure that the water is draining away from the house. If you need to bring some fill dirt in and compact it up against the house so you have a positive slope, that could help. Be sure that if you have gutter and downspout, that the downspouts are taking the water away from the house during a rain. Also, stone basements are so unique, these old ones compared to brick or block, in that they typically are just solid stone with mortar joint from inside from out. And one of the things that will help you if the water's coming in above grade, largely rainwater, is to waterproof that. Something as simple and inexpensive as a Thompson water seal that you can spray on with a garden sprayer every year or so will do justice to that. And if you have any type of other drainage swales around the house, you want to be sure it's conveying the water away from the house. A home this old is not likely to have any type of a foundation drain, so I can't give you much advice with that. If you've got a serious problem, that is the permanent solution is to install a foundation drain. Good luck, Tony. Don't forget, if you've got a question for Ken, email him at kenthecontractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. Thanks for joining us this hour on Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.